Pulse Audio Podcast Network. If you're gross and you know it, start to cough. <coughs> if you're gross and you know it, start to cough. <coughs> if you're gross and you know it, and everything about your peer appearance and sound shows it. If you're gross and you know it, start to cough. <coughs> Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Whining About Herstory. Um, I'm sure for people who are like very sensitive to sounds, that was just a, a real treat to hear me be super gross. Um, I'm really leaning into the sexy vocal fry because my you have al- no choice. My allergies have been kicking my ass for two weeks, and I made the the big mistake. I I like I called off one evening from the hotel. Like I went to my normal job, but I called off the evening and it was amazing because I went to Hy-Vee to pick up orange juice and meds and I ran into Kelly. I I literally, without even knowing it, I parked directly next to her. And I walked out of Hy-Vee and I'm like, I think that's Emily's car. And she parked next to me. So I called her thinking, assuming she was in Hy-Vee. Yeah. And I was like, oh, are you at Hy-Vee? And she's like, I'm in the parking lot in my car. And I'm like, I'm next to you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I look over. I was like, "Oh shit, is that your car?" So I love that it's not even that we ran into each other in this big store that it would make sense for both of us to be in right. at the same time. No, it it's, was in the parking. You we parked, parked next to me, directly next to each other. So if that isn't the universe telling us that we needed to have a podcast together, I don't know what it is. Right. <laughs> but uh, but like, so I took the night off. I rested. And I felt a lot better the next day. So I went to the gym and did all my normal stuff and like hustle, hustle, hustle. And now today I'm just like, oh no. You're like, I regret everything. Yeah, things are, um, mistakes were made. Rest should have been taken. But after recording this, I'm going to chill the fuck out tonight because I need it. But I'm here for you because I was also sick the last time we were trying to record. That was mm-hmm. a totally separate illness situation so i'm just like god i body get your shit together i got stuff to do to do i have stuff to do i don't have time for you to throw a goddamn fit and be all crabby that the flowers are blooming you know like anyway i'm emily i'm kelly and welcome to whining about herstory and whining about being sick and whining about allergies and whining (laughs) and just like whining in general I feel like this is going to be an extra whiny episode. I have a lot to whine about. Um, so I also just want to, a quick quick housekeeping. Uh, I want to apologize for us not having an episode. It was like two weeks in a row. Yeah, and that's one, because. One, we were sick. Yeah. And then one, we did a live stream and the audio was almost impossible to like piece together. Cause yeah, it, our, our, like. It worked for the live stream, but our equipment didn't work properly and like record it. So I was like trying to pull this stuff out of video and piece it all together. And there were like four different people. I was so I like at first it was like, I'm not going to get this out on time. And then it was like, I literally don't have time to sit down and like, you know, get elbow deep into this. So if you were one of our patrons that joined us for the live stream, congratulations. That may have been like a once in a lifetime thing. Right. And I may try to like piece together the video. And post it to Patreon. And post it to Patreon. Yeah. But that's the only way you're going to see it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
It was amazing, though. I just want to give a huge thanks and shout out to Kina from Historical AF for joining us. And Rachel and Leah from Hashtag History. It was amazing. Yes, and they told some amazing stories. And actually, I had a story prepared because we... The, the first part of the live stream was us and Kina. So we told a story and she told a story. And then the second part was going to be hashtag history telling a story and us telling a story. So Kelly and I each had something prepared. Mm-hmm. Kelly went, you know, did her story first, but hashtag history was on a time crunch. So we didn't have the opportunity to do my story, but I'm going to share it all with you. And, uh, our theme was Royals and, uh, No one behaves badly like fucking royals, especially fucking royals from the three digit years. Like the farther farther back you go, I'm convinced the more fucked up everyone was. And it's it's truly a sight to behold. But before we get to that, Kelly, what are we drinking? Well, and I'm going first. So before we get to that, we have a whole nother story. Um, It's okay. I'm just priming everyone's pump. Right. So today we're drinking Otto's Constant Dream, which is a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. And it's really cool because it's a picture of a guy and then it has probably what was um, like the phrenology sections of the brain. Mm -hmm. But like it says wine, estate is great, diplomacy, choose wisely. It has like a bunch of wine bottles. It's really cool. It's very psyche. And it says, this wine is delicious. There, you happy now? What'd you think we were going to say? What we really want you to know is that we are committed to bringing you great juice from all over the world. OCD is our original original wine, and we selected it for its character, same way you pick your friends. Because that's what it stands for, Otto's Constant Dream, OCD. Yep, OCD. Okay, I also want to... Just you, like that there, are you happy now? What did you expect us to say? You know, I love that. It's I love sassy. an overly dramatic inadvertently sexy wine bottle description but this might be my favorite because this is how i if i had wine i would just be like bitch this shit is delicious exactly drank drank what do you want us to say drank girl (laughs) like yeah and then i would just change it to like pregnant people shouldn't drink instead of women shouldn't drink if pregnant it's like first of all Let's be gender inclusive, guys. Right. Actually, okay. I just said, let's be gender inclusive. And guys. then use, God damn. You know, it's a process. I'm trying. Let's be gender inclusive, y'all. Y'all. You know what? Kelly and I are just a couple of queso queens trying to get through our fucking lives. Yeah, we are. Like, <laughs> We're not free salsa. We're queso. We're queso. Queso queens. Uh, so what should we cheers to? Being queso queens? Yes, I don't being queso queens. <laughs> yeah, I love that. You sent me that. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, I sent her a thing that said, like, don't let yourself be treated like free salsa. You are cheese dip, baby. Cheese dip. Yep. And I, I was like, oh, my God. You're, I was like, Kelly, you're a queso queen. <laughs> and she's like, you are, too. And now I'm owning that. Yeah. Especially as I'm trying to, like, learn and practice mi español. Good for you. Yeah. I started uh, covering my cubicle at work with a bunch of sticky notes that have everything trans. Like, I'm going full high school Spanish student You're right super now. Funny. I'm I'm becoming the high school Spanish student I couldn't be when I was 15 because I was too depressed and burnt out and did not care. 
<laughs> Fuck this shit. Yeah. But now I'm like, because I'm not being forced to do it, it's like, I want to acquire that skill. So then it, it, it it's more fun rather than like, oh God, this is just another class I have to get to amongst the billion other things I have to deal with, you know? Yeah. Mm. So our friend Liz, who is actually a Spanish teacher, should be very proud. I don't know what proud is in Spanish, but. <laughs> she was proud for a second and then she's like, never mind. <laughs> she's like, shit. <laughs> uh, voy al baño. Voy al baño. I'm going to the bathroom. To shame. Okay, sorry, Kelly. I shake my head at you. you just, yeah. I'm, I'm super chaotic today. I haven't been drinking, but I feel kind of like I'm, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Everything, nothing matters. It's like, what? So, Kelly, who are you covering? Please save me for myself. Uh, Mary Witten Cockins is who I'm covering. Oh, my God. What? Mary Witten Cockins. That is the best <laughs> name. Like I, what? Have I covered her? Did I accidentally no, cover her twice? No, that is just the best name I have ever heard. Mary Wittencockins. For all of you out there who are looking to name your children, your animals, yourselves. Mary Wittencockins. Mary Wittencockins. Mary Wittencockins all up and down the block. She just couldn't get enough of that cock. <laughs> That was terrible. Yeah, it was. I don't. Okay. Kelly, please go on. All right. Please go on. So this story is about a woman who was ready for an academic career before the patriarchal academic world of the late 19th century was ready for her. Okay. All I can see is a woman walking up and down the block being like, how you doing? (laughs) She was ready for all those cocks before the patriarchy was ready to let her have them. Not quite, but okay. (laughs) Um, So Mary was born on March 30th in 1863 in Hartford, Connecticut. She was the eldest of eight children. Oh my God. Her parents were Walcott and Charlotte. Walcott Cockins? It was Walcott Witten Cockins. Shut the fuck up. Walk I guess, I guess it could be Calkins. Maybe I should no. change it so you stop talking about cock. No, shut up. It's Calkins. You can't change my mind. So, she, could, she could come back from the dead right now and tell me I'm saying her name wrong. And I'd be like, bitch, you were born in the 1800s. You don't know anything. That's funny. Um, her parents would later move to Newton, Massachusetts. Well, her whole family. And it was in Newton's that she would begin her education, and she would actually remain in Newton for the rest of her life. Like, at least that was her home base, mm-hmm. you know. Um, her family did eventually move from New York to Massachusetts because her father was a Presbyterian minister, but um, like I said, Newton became Mar- Mary's home. Yeah. So... Mary's father took a very active role in overseeing all eight of his children's education and planned their studies, including the girls. That's like, awesome. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm going to make sure my sons are well educated and like, fuck my, fuck my daughters. You go, Not Mr. Cockins. But, you know, and so she had a good enough education that she was able to enroll in college right, right when she graduated. So she was, she enrolled in Smith College, obviously, because that was like the only one, one the women only female could go college. To. Um, 
What was it? One of the seven sisters. Yeah. Yeah. And she was, um, she had enough like knowledge and stuff under her belt that she was actually able to skip a year and she was able to enter Smith college as a sophomore. Jesus Christ girl. She studied there for a year and then took a year off after because her sister died. Oh, so she kind of took a year off, did some like self-exploring, a little learning on her own terms, just not at a college. And um, during this time, one of the things she chose to learn was Greek and like about Greece, like from a private tutor. And then from there, she taught that to her younger brothers. And this is before she could just download Duolingo to her phone and, you know, do it for five minutes every day and feel like she's learning. Right. (laughs) Like some people. She would graduate from Smith College and afterward, uh, her and her entire family would take an 18 month trip to Europe. Like, I want to do that. Um, she was able to explore Italy and Greece and, like, all of these different countries. Um, and at the time, she was um, still studying. She was studying for another major. This time she was majoring in, like, classics is what they called it at the yeah. time. Um, and so she took full advantage of opportunities to learn languages, particularly, like, Greek and, like, the classics and all of that stuff. She would go on to return to Massachusetts, as I said, where her father would set her up with a uh, an interview with the president of uh, Wellesley College. <gasps> Wellesley. Which was also an all-women's college. Yeah, that's also one of the seven sisters. Exactly. Um, and so the interview was a, for, like, a tutoring job uh, for her to teach in the Greek department, because obviously she has all this knowledge. And so she had the interview, got... The job, which is great. And then actually eventually got promoted to be a, te- a full-time teacher at Wellesley um, in the Greek department, which she would do for three years. Wow. Yep. A professor in the philosophy department, however, noticed that Mary was excellent at teaching and offered her a position to teach psychology. <gasps> Why? I have no idea. Okay. Yeah, now you get the bottle. I was going to say, I, I kind of figured you were like, we have to drink this bottle for one of my women today. I was like... We're getting psych up in here, psych up in here. I don't know why, like, looking at her and being like, you're a good teacher, made her, made this philosophy professor go, you should teach psychology, but it's I, not for me to question. I mean, do you ever meet those people that are just, like, really good at reading others? And especially as a teacher, you kind of have to meet your students where they are and adjust your approach to what's going to work best for them. Well, and the other thing is there probably wasn't any true psych teachers this was when psychology was still very new very young very like niche and it was actually part of the philosophy department's curriculum yeah it wasn't its own major yeah like Sigmund Freud at this point is still trying to figure out if he wants to kill his father and fuck his mother and what that's all about (laughs) um she did go on to accept the position um on the contingency that she would be able to go somewhere else and study psychology for a year and then come back and teach it. She's like, I want knowledge on the subject I'm teaching. I also love that they're like, hey, we want you to do this job. And she's like, cool, but I have to go on vacation first for my job. Right. And they're like, it's not really vacation. School is not a vacation. I mean, it's not, but still it's like for your job, you get to go and just like pursue something awesome for a year. And although at this time women we're getting more educational op- opportunities to both attend and teach at colleges. Mary still faced an absolute incredible amount of sexism, like not only in the classics that she was originally teaching, but then even more so when she was trying to move into a new field, yeah. you know, particularly a field that is science-based. 
Um, and so there was one, there wasn't a lot of options in general for psychology degrees, but there was almost no options for women. Right. Um, nevertheless, she found herself, uh, increasingly drawn to this field. Like, you know, she was like, oh, this is new and exciting and I really want to learn about it. So eventually she was able to, um, get special permission to attend seminars at Harvard, which was all male at the time. Yeah. And she wasn't a student. Like, that's the important thing. She wasn't considered a student, but they're like, okay, you can go and sit in on the class. She, she was auditing. Not really even. Like, she just was allowed to go. She was spectating. Yeah. She was just, like, hanging out in the back. So um, she was able to attend classes even offered by William James and Josiah Roy- Royce, who are, like, bigger names in the early field of psychology. Um, like I said, she wasn't considered a student, and she wasn't considered student, even though she was the only person in uh, William James's graduate seminar in 1890. She was the only person. Can okay? Can we all just pause and think how insane it was that, like nowadays, if you don't have like ten plus students, the class doesn't happen. Back then, it's like, oh yeah, no, just one I mean, person signed graduate up. Graduate studies are a little bit different, but. Yeah, only having one person, that yeah. wouldn't happen. Who's, Especially someone who's not even actually a student. Yeah, so they're they're basically, like, just having a conversation. I know, it's weird. Um, but, but this the year that he, she was in his graduate seminar is the year he published his, his book called Principles of Psychology. So, like, it was a huge deal. And she actually went on to write in her autobiography, quote, The Principles of Psychology was warm from the press and my... My absorbed study of those brilliant, erudite, and provocative volumes, as interpreted by their writer, was my introduction to psychology. What I gained from the written page, and even more from the tete-a-tete discussion, was that it seems to me, as I look back upon it beyond all else, a vivid sense of the concreteness of psychology and the immediate reality of finite individual minds with their thoughts and feelings. She talks so pretty. I know, right? (laughs) So following her training under James, Mary would go on to work alongside Edmund Sanford of Clark University. Um, This was kind of like he was tutoring her, but again, she wasn't like really a student. It was, it's a whole thing. I mean, okay, if, if the goal is for her to just expand her knowledge on the subject, she is getting the world's best deal. Oh yeah, she 100% is because all of these people that she's studying under are like top Top names in the field. They're top experts. She doesn't have to pay tuition. At times, she's getting like a Mm one-on-one, like clinic, you know? And she doesn't have to pay tuition. The only- It never mentioned anywhere that she had to pay. And so I don't, I actually don't know if she did or not. I'm going to assume she didn't because she wasn't a student. Yeah, but I could totally see them being like, I could totally see them being like, yeah, like give us your money, but also go fuck yourself. Or like, who knows, maybe Wellesley paid for her to go- it's still a really sweet oh, deal. Oh, yeah, 100%. So when she was under, tu- getting tutored under Edmund Sanford, she was actually, she was allowed and given permission to conduct a research project um, involving the contents of her and Edmund's dreams that they would record during a seven-week period. She recorded 205 dreams of her own, and Sanford would record 170 of his They would wake themselves up by the use of alarm clocks at different hours of the night and record their dreams the instant of waking. So basically they just had like a notepad immediately next to their bed, would wake up, write it down and go back to sleep. I actually, I did something like that in high school. Um, I heard about this technique where if as you're falling asleep, you tell yourself like, 
you will wake up after every dream. You will wake up after every, you say that over and over and it kind of like sticks in your head. So that night, every time I had a dream and the dream came to a conclusion, I woke up hmm. and I would write down what happened, go back to sleep. And so I, I did I that. Just sleep. I mean, this was like my chaotic high school self. I, I don't give a shit anymore. Right. But it was, it was a similar thing. You know, and it, it, I don't know, it was really cool because I was able to remember the dreams better for having, in, instead of like one solid dream sequence, it was like, you know, these almost like little dream vignettes that then I wrote down, I was able to recall them. Well, and I mean, that's how dreams usually work because they only happen during REM and REM's only a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And anyways, uh, but so they would do this recording and obviously they would do it right away so that they wouldn't lose anything because dreams very quickly recede from your memory. There's a lot of shit in there. Yeah. Um, and so each morning they would study the notes and all, any records like that they made, regardless of whether they seemed slight or trivial or significant. So like regardless of what the notes said, they like poured over them. Mm-hmm. They also took into account um, different types of dreams and they discovered like, you know, different types of dreams were affected by various emotions, obviously. But obviously they didn't know that back then. Right. Um, and as part of this project, they also considered the relations of um, the dream to consciousness and waking life and distinguishing individuals and places in their dream experience versus how they are in real life. Um, and one of the conclusions that they made was the loss of identity in dreams. It's not the loss, like, you don't really lose who you are, but, like, it's a change or a doubling of self-conscious consciousness and yet all at the same time you're you know you're kind of conscious in your dream that it is yourself mm-hmm. that's changed or who I whose identity is doubled you know like you're aware that you're yourself in a dream but but yeah. it's not yourself I mean have you know you what ever, I mean have you ever had that had a dream where like yeah yeah like you are the primary actor in the dream, but you're not you. Right. You're like a totally, you're a different person or you're a character from something. Right. Or even if you are yourself, you know, it's not like you, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, I, it's that identity doubling. Yeah. I actually, a lot of my dreams uh, get cinematic where I you're see, like, I like person. yeah, I yeah. see myself. I'm watching what I'm doing as if I'm watching a movie, especially my Jurassic Park dreams. <laughs> I'm just imagining they didn't have a section for Jurassic Park dreams because I'd love to know what that's about. Right. (laughs) Actually, I know exactly what it's about. I love dinosaurs. (laughs) So Mary's research was actually even cited by Sigmund Freud when he created his conception of like of what he viewed dreams as. So that's pretty cool. But Mary had gone to claim that Freudians at the time were, quote, superficially concerned with the manifest content of dreams. She was like, "Okay, guys, like. You're paying way too much attention to what's going on in your dreams. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, I saw a bird and it flew in a zigzag pattern and it was black. And that means I want to fuck my mother and kill my father. I don't know. Right. And it's like, no, it's it's kind of the overarching theme. So what's interesting is results of a, a more recent study was done in 2015 by Mon- uh Montenegro and Cavallero. So this is 2015. This is more modern research. Mm -hmm. And they suggested that consecutive events of dreams of their participants were rarely plausible and often seem to have absolutely no relation to one another, like what's going on. And this is actually, so like their research was basically like, you know, dreams actually don't have a lot of hidden meaning. And that is exactly what um, Mary originally concluded. 
But she was like, dreams are just kind of what your brain does. It's just super weird. I, it's funny because I have, I'll have like reoccurring dreams or like reoccurring themes in my dreams. And usually I can be like, oh, I know why I dreamt that because I watched that TV show. Yeah, you can like pinpoint it. You're like, okay, I know because I'm really anxious about this. And the last time I was anxious about this, I had the same dream. Or like, oh, this is a trauma related dream. Or yeah, that one time my tooth fell out and now I'm having teeth falling out dreams. Or I remember when I was a freshman in college, I started having dreams where I was driving, Hmm. but I couldn't control the car and it kept like, you know, veering off. And I was like, that's a really weird dream. It was because I wasn't driving. Interesting. I had the same, I still have the same kinds of dreams about swimming where it's like, I'm trying to put my hand in the water and my, like my hand turns into a fist. Like I just crumbles Yeah. because uh, swimming was a huge part of my life for a long time that I don't do it. So my body's like, oh, you're going to forget how, but it's one of those things where I'm like, that's a weird dream. Yeah, you wake up and you're like, that makes no sense. Yeah, but then you're like, oh, actually, I know exactly why I'm having exactly. that dream. I know exactly what triggered that. So even though she was allowed to study at Harvard and then do her own research study, Mary still wanted, you know, to further her education in psychology. And Sanford, the guy that she was, you know, working with, discouraged her from going to schools like John Hopkins or Clark um, because they weren't likely to admit women's students, very similar to how, what happened to her at Sar- uh, Harvard. Um, and he actually said, he was like, you know, maybe you should go to Europe because they're more open, you know. And Tell he, me she went to France. <laughs> no. And he actually was kind of like, well, maybe you could go work for uh, Hugo Munsterberg, who's another big name. And he's like, because I know he's admitted female students to his laboratory in Germany. That's fucking sweet. So... She was like, okay, yeah, I kind of want to do that. And she kind of expressed her desire to, like, the various men she had worked under. And they got her in contact with him. And she actually learned that um, Munsterberg was actually going to be coming to Harvard to do a study. And so she's like, okay, great. Like, I don't have to go to Germany now. Like, so she managed to, like, get to work under him. And she worked under him for three years. um, And she continued um, doing dream studies with him. During this time, she actually published several papers, um, including the research she had done with Sanford previously and her first paper on association. So like what you associate things with. Mm -hmm. In her autobiography, she describes working with Munsterberg or she describes Munsterberg as a man of deep learning, high originality and astounding versatility. So, you know, high praise. He's he's like, you know, he's willing to like. He's he's flexible, which is great. Can she write my dating profile? Because she is like she talks so pretty. (laughs) So Hugo and Mary would, like I said, would continue studying dreams, kind of furthering her research from before. And he would begin training her in detail of how to conduct like laboratory experiments, because obviously, like before when she was doing it, it was just her and Sanford recording their dreams. And so he's like, you know, all right, like, let's get a little more like laboratory with it let's get a little more laboratorical yeah and so like he would give her research problems based on the records that the two of them would like come up with in their dreams and so she would be like okay if if this is in our records what does this mean and like you know kind of like okay you need to scientifically look at this kind of a thing and over those weeks they would wake them like again they would wake themselves up and the conclusions 
they reach were kind of very much the same as Sanford, that, that the reproductions of dreams and of the person's places and events were just a recent sense of perception, basically. Like, a lot of times, yeah, the people you see in your dreams are people you've been thinking about recently. Not always. Yeah. But generally, like, because I know that because, like, every once in a while, like, a, an ex pops into my head and I'm like, oh, yeah, there was that one thing that reminded me of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I don't have any, like, some people are like, oh, I dreamed of my ex. Clearly, I still have feelings for them. I'm like, no, like, I heard this one song and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember listening to this with them. Yep. And that's why they're in your dream. I feel like even something that happened, uh, I don't know, I feel like something that didn't even happen that recently can like, yeah, it's like, just because like if something or someone was a significant part of your life for a period of time, like that's small things are going to remind you of them. It can just, well, and it can just creep back up. Right. Yes. So during this time, she continued to experience a lot of discrimination due to her sex. Um, and in her autobiography, she actually reminisces on a, like about this one time that she, um, met an executive, um, the executive committee of the American Psychological Association. And, um, so they went Munsterberg and his students. So, and she was the only female in the group, but they were attending a lunch meeting for the APA, the American Psychological Association at Harvard Union, which is like their cafeteria or restaurant I don't know I've never been to Harvard but the way like when they walked in the waiter was like no you can't come in because quote no woman might set foot in the main hall nor was it possible to admit so many men balanced solely by one woman to the ladies dining room fuck right off I wasn't able to find out like what happened but I'm like really it's like, what like you can't you can't let all the men in because it's only one woman, but you're not willing to let one woman in with all these men. It's 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 sitting down at a table, right? It's Stop so, trying to make this so, so a thing. Like my fucking god, and like right. honestly, like when when you hear about like some of these instances of sexism or racism, etc. It's the stupidest shit. It's, well, it's the like stupidest, song. most piddly shit where it's like, oh, we can't have the same drinking fountains. Right. Like, well, it's are, it's, it's some, a drinking fountain. Calm the fuck down. It's some random fucking waiter that's basically just like, yeah, you you can't sit here. You yeah. can't sit with the boys. Like, fuck you. No girls allowed. Um, Like, I don't know. It's it just, it's like, yeah, it, it's like, it's like playground bullshit where it's like, you can't play like that. You can't. But adults who get to make decisions about what other adults can and cannot do. And sometimes it becomes law and it's just the dumbest thing. It's so frustrating. Yeah. So obviously like that's that kind of sexism was everywhere in Mary's life, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. to the point where in her autobiography, she actually expressed her gratitude for the individuals that did not discriminate toward her. The quote, friendly camaraderie. Camaraderie, oh my god, camaraderie, camaraderie, yeah, or it's not nope. camaraderie. Nope. Okay. The, like people who acted like comrades. Oh, I get her As and refreshingly in a comrade way. Okay. Exactly. So, like, and she said a lot of the guys that worked under Hugo Munsterberg were were very similar in thinking to him, where they were fine working alongside a female, yeah, and they didn't care. And quite a few of his assistants and students um, are described in her autobiography with 
a great deal of appreciation from her because they treated her just like it didn't matter. Like I'm imagining her giving her Oscar acceptance speech and she's like, I just want to thank all the men that, you know, weren't Weren't dicks to me. And it's her speech lasts for three seconds and they don't even have to play her off with the music because it's like, yeah, they were pretty few and far between, but I really appreciate (laughs) you. (laughs) So after she was done working with Hugo... She passed, she had, at this point, she had passed all of the requirements to get a PhD at Harvard. Not only to get a normal PhD, but to be able to get a PhD with distinction. She did really well. She even wrote a dissertation on memory, um, for which she developed her own, like, memory paradigm called the Paired Association Experimental Paradigm. I'm just going to nod yep. and like, okay, that's that's a thing. <laughs> Basically, it is a memory paradigm that is used to understand how people encode and retrieve newly formed associations from stimulus in their environment. Okay. Again, I'm just going to keep nodding and pretending I know what all this means. <laughs> I'm trying to like... Here's the other thing. Think of an easy way to say it. Because, like, of course, I know what it is. My, like, my sinuses are all blocked up, so I'm also not my best thinky self today. <laughs> right, so I'm just kind of like, okay, cool. When I'm editing this, I'm going to be like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> Basically, it's kind of like they would give you, like, paired words, like, mm-hmm. that didn't actually go together, but, like, stove and letter. And then they would have you try and, like, later recall those words it was it's an interesting because paired association oh i see i see that's like this very simple version of it but that the paired association experimental paradigm is considered one of the classic tools in memory research and it is still used that is why she developed it purely for her dissertation this was homework right like i i know your dissertation is a bigger deal than that but this is her homework (laughs) So, you know, as she was trying to get her PhD from Harvard, Hugo Munsterberg would actually go on to write the president of Harvard and say that Mary was, quote, one of the strongest professors of psychology in this country. Oh, hot damn. She is my jam. So during this time, obviously, because she was a woman and technically she wasn't a student, um, Harvard put together a a professor of, or a committee of six professors, including James, who Mary had previously worked under, and all six of them unanimously voted that Mary had satisfied all of the requirements to get her degree. However, Harvard decided to be a dick and not give it to her because she was a woman. Literally, that was their reasoning. Okay, but like, you got six like I assume well-paid well-educated yeah, professionals and it was unanimous. together like there was no argument to evaluate this and that you know they did it under the assumption that like mm, they're not all going to agree and then when they did Harvard was like mm, no I'm gonna take my ball and I'm gonna go home right so you guys can't like why did you even do it Harvard did eventually offer her a special doctorate bearing the name of Radcliffe College instead of Harvard because Radcliffe was the women's college associated with with Harvard but Mary turned it down she was like fuck you oh my god she's like I'm not taking your pissy little consolation prize you bastards well and Mary did not let this you know tiny little setback in her mind 
set her back. She's like, fuck this. And she began to teach psychology. She went back to Wellesley and began teaching psychology. She would teach um, for 12 years and then open the first psychology laboratory. um, Or no, someone else would open the first psychology laboratory in Germany. And using his like model, model, uh, Mary would go on to establish the first psychology lab to be founded by a woman at Wellesley. So it was the first lab established by a woman and the first lab established at a women's college. Was it would it also be the first in the United States? Uh, I didn't say that. So I'm going to go with no. OK, because you said the first one was in Germany. Yeah, that's just the one she modeled it after. Oh, I see. Um, the lab was funded by two hundred dollars. While are all, you kidding me? While all other labs were founded by a minimum of eight hundred dollars, so she managed to make a lab work on a fourth of what other labs were given. I can't figure out if that's the part that blows my mind the most, or that you could like run a psychology lab on eight hundred dollars. I mean, back then, I know, but um, it just it makes my it makes my wallet itch. <laughs> right, I know. Back at the time, Mary, the, the way she saved money, Mary had a lot of, like, the apparatuses and various things she needed constructed, like, nearby so she could try and save money, and there was people she knew. Her lab also only occupied an attic space on the fifth floor of one of the buildings at Wellesley College. And after it was established, though, it quickly gained popularity, like, you know, because again, it was still a new growing field. It was the happening lab. Right. Um, and her first course called Psychology Approach from this Physiological Standpoint yielded over 50 students. Just her first course. Good God. And these students were instructed in some areas of psychology and would go on to conduct experiments on such subjects as sensation and association. Unfortunately, a fire would break out in the nearby physics lab, which would go on to burn the building that also um, held her laboratory, among obviously other things. Like it just it wasn't just her um, laboratory. Luckily, no students or instructors were injured in the fire. But unfortunately, the first psychological laboratory established by a woman was completely destroyed. Fuck. Um, They would go on to rebuild it and um, Mary would continue running it. And when she retired, she handed it off to a woman named Eleanor Gamble so that it could continue being run by a woman. That's sweet. So after all of this time and all the bullshit Mary went through, she would actually go on to be elected as the APA's 14th president and the first female president of the APA. Oh, hot. Yeah. She doesn't even have a like degree and she's still like doing all of this shit. And she is considered one of the most important first generation American psychologists in her lifetime, she published four books and over 100 papers on psychology and philosophy, and she was ranked 12th in a list of 50 most eminent psychologists in the United States in 1903. You know what makes me the happiest about that? I, I was trying to figure out, like, would I have taken the degree from Harvard that didn't have Harvard on it? You know, like, just to have it? Because right. it's kind of like, it's better I than get, nothing. I get it, though. I get like... I, 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 I totally get why she didn't do it. And I'm like, good for her. I don't know what I would do in that situation. But knowing that she's like incredibly successful. And she's still doing the damn thing. She's super like she's this professional success and she's doing it all while just being like, yeah, I don't even have a degree. Go fuck yourself. Like it seems extra spiteful and I I love love it. Yeah. 
So Mary would spend a large part of her career developing a system of scientific self-psychology to which she was absolutely committed. Like basically once she was done with her paired association technique and stuff, this, that was what she committed herself to. She based her system of self-psychology on the conviction that the foundational unit of study for psychology should be the conscious self. She defined personalistic introspection psychology as the study of consciousness, functioning, and experiencing selves that exist in relationship to one another. Emily's over there nodding her head, and she probably has no idea what that means. I'm, I, you know, I'm just supporting you <laughs> in, in, her, the, in the journey yeah. that we're on. <laughs> yeah. In her autobiography published in 1930, the year of her death, she would attribute, attribute, what? She would attribute it. <laughs> She would attribute her conception of the self as social to the influence of Royce and James, the, the men she initially studied under the when she originally came to Harvard, which mm-hmm. I think is great. She also wrote, quote, for with each year I live, with each book I read, with each observation I initiate or confirm, I am more deeply convinced that psychology should be conceived as the science of the self or person as related to its environment, physical and social. Which it's basically what it is now. Mm-hmm. Mary was also part of a very large um, controversy that happened kind of in the beginning of the psych being a thing. Um, and it arose over a man named John Watson and his now famous book or not book. Sorry. It was an article that was called psychology as the behaviorist views it. So be, being a behaviorist is like a very specific type of psychology, kind of mm-hmm. like there's the Freudian view, there's the behaviorist view, which is a lot to do with like your behaviors influence how you think. It's it, it's a weird thing. <laughs> Anyways, but in the article, uh, Watson basically argues that introspection forms absolutely no part in scientific psychology. Basically, he's like, you know, thinking... You know, everyone knows what introspection is, you know, looking in on yourself. He's like, no, that's not part of psychology. Screw that. Um, And Mary came back and was like, "Um, no. And like, she's like, okay, like, it's fine if you're like, maybe introspection isn't all that. But she's like saying that it's nothing and cutting it out completely as a psychological method is not okay right and she was certain that certain psychological processes could only be studied by looking in on yourself she pointed out that introspection in itself is a method for studying behavior especially complex behavior such as imaging judging and reasoning however she was sympathetic to john watson's observations that psychology had become too far removed from the problems of everyday life like she's like okay yeah i agree with some of your points however like you cannot dismiss introspection out of hand. Mm-hmm. All in all, Mary was an absolutely remarkable scientist, scholar, APA president, and human being. And outside of her contributions to the field of psychology, Mary was also an avid supporter of women's rights. She was a suffragist active in the fight for women's rights, disputing, quote, in a democratic country governed as, as this is by suffrage of its citizens and given over as this is to the principle and practice of educating women, a distinction based on the difference of sex is artificial and illogical. Thank you. Right. 
Thank you. That's so much more eloquent than going, it's dumb. So while she would fight for women's rights, she was also a pacifist, so she wouldn't actually like physically fight. Um, and she was a member of the American Civil Liberties Union. And while working at Wellesley, she actually stepped down um, from Wellesley teaching because a colleague that she had that hold, held the same um, pacifist views during World War One was fired for mm-hmm. holding those views. And so Mary was like, I'm resigning because I hold the same view, views as this person you fired. And Wellesley was like, no. So she wasn't act- like, she tried to step down and she wasn't allowed to. They were basically like, no, we can't lose you. Oh my God. Which I think is great. Like, think about that if you went into your boss's office and was like, yeah, I'm leaving. And they're just like, no, you're not. It's not even like, well, what can I do to make you stay? It's like, no. You're not leaving. No one leaves ever. Right. Ever. Ever. Ah. I think that's funny. I love, I love that. Um, so Mary would serve on the faculty member as Wellesley. Like I said, she, they wouldn't let her leave. And so she was there for 40 years until she re- retired in 1929. She would unfortunately die the next year in 1930 at the age of 66. And I could not find her cause of death. But 1930, I'm like, mm, I guess they died younger back then. 66 I mean, isn't that young for I, back I was, then. Yeah, I was going to say it's not the most but outrageous she accomplished age. so much. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she was teaching, like, most of, like, she was basically teaching until retirement age today. Because she, she stopped teaching a year before she died, so she would have been 65. God. So, like, that's modern day retirement age can't stop won't stop didn't stop until death made her (laughs) exactly so yeah i i was looking specifically to cover a psychology woman not because of this wine but just because i was like oh i haven't covered one in a while um and i came across mary and i was like this this is a thing i i will say if you if you actually know more about psychology or want to learn more of the specifics i did take a lot of that out because yeah it is very terminology heavy mm-hmm. um and so i kind of cut it down to hopefully so emily and listeners that are not super into psychology could understand it more i appreciate that yeah because uh, here's the other thing i would be asking so many questions in this episode to be like eight hours long because i'd be like kelly pause uh i know you're only two sentences in but explain to me this complex psychological phenomenon three days later three days later love it well, thank you for sharing that. Well, that was amazing. I also love it whenever you cover someone who has a, a like a psychology background yeah. because you get so into it. Like it's your thing. I do, and I think it's really got to be valuable for you to learn about, like your foremothers who came before. Yes, like these are these are the women that paved the path for you to be working full-time, have a women's history podcast, and becoming a psychology queen. I know. I love it. Yeah, it's good. I love it. Um, So my lady is not going to be as, like, altruistic as yours. Um, She's kind of a hot fucking mess. So more like us. But, yeah, I was going to say, but I, like, identify with it. And there are definitely times where I'm like, bitch, you got to stop. And other times I'm like, nah, I get it. Right. (laughs) So uh, this is going to reveal a lot about me as a person. Uh, so also, I'm going to apologize. This all took in like took place in like the 500s and 600s. That's fine. In uh, it was hard for me to like 
directly pinned down, but it was like the hungry Austrian, potentially German area, general area. So, so these pronunciations are Eastern European ish, like c- Central Eastern Europe. No, Central Western Europe. Yeah, I was going to say, no, not My even Eastern. directions are terrible. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, that's okay. The other night I was like, turn left here. And I was pointing at the right. And I was like, I'm the opposite. I do ha- as I point, not as I say. Yeah, no, I have to point because I get, I've gotten directions so many times wrong that if I don't point, my husband will be like, left, left? Like, do you actually mean yeah. left? And sometimes you- I'm like, oh, no, no, I mean, I mean, right. You keep or saying left, but I do not think you know what it means. <laughs> I think you know what that mean, <laughs> word means. Good God. Okay, so. Just everyone buckle up for this linguistic butchery that's about to be unleashed upon you. I am covering Queen Friedgund. And I'm going to say it with like a cool accent to make it sound more fancy. Like Friedgund. Germany-ish. Yeah. So unlike many female rulers, Friedgund was not born into royalty. Hers is more of a rags to riches to bitches story. (laughs) Friedgund, uh, it's hard because phonetically it look, it's F-R-E-D-E-G-U-N-D. So I I kept wanting to say Fredegund. 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 But it's not. It's Friedgund. Just call her like Frida. I could just call her Fred. (laughs) So Fred came from humble beginnings. She was born into a low ranking family sometime in the 500s A.D., probably in the general non-Camille area of present day Germany. <laughs> Non-committal. Yeah, just like um, allegedly. Like the a cor- alleged German area. A, a, according to family lore, she was born somewhere around here, gestures to the entire globe. <laughs> so upward mobility was notoriously difficult at this time, but Friedgund would employ everyone's favorite cliche and pull herself up by her later hosen. <laughs> So You're just really digging into that German. I, yeah. So she's actually like living in a Frankish kingdom, which I, the Franks, aren't they like pre-German? I, I don't know. I feel like I'm coming off as like a real dumbass throughout this story, but just let You're me get not. through my notes. I love you. So Fliegund was living in the Frankish kingdom of Neustria, ruled by King Schilferek. It it's 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 great actually. His name is spelled Chill Parrot. Chill Parrot. Chill Parrot. Chill. It's C H I L P E R I C. I C. Yeah. So Chill Parrot. Uh, I might just call him. I might not make his name fancy. I might just chill. call him Chill Parrot. Chill Parrot or whatever. So uh, she was able to work as a servant for the king's wife, Queen Adovera or Aloe Vera, mm-hmm. as she is in my head. Uh, however, while she was pumicing the queen's feet, feeding her grapes, and throwing herself over puddles or whatever else I imagine they made royal servants do back then, Frigund was plotting. Dun, dun, dun. So King Chilperic took notice of Frigund in a bum chicka wow wow sort of way. <laughs> Like he turns on the RMB when she oh, walks yeah. in the room. 100%. Like, bow, bow, bow. I've been really trying, baby, to fuck as many women as possible. And you're on that list at the top. <laughs> Boom. So Frigund Fri took advantage of this. And after some mind blowing manipulation, sex, or. Oh, sorry. Oh. There, there's a comma. 
I put, I wrote after some mind blowing manipulation, comma, sex, comma, or a combination of both manipulation sex. (laughs) She convinced the king to divorce aloe vera and committed her to a convent. Bummer. Not like the worst thing, but yeah. So she's gone. Uh, However, King Chilperic, who was who has proved to be like a flaky fuck boy at best, didn't make Frigund his next wife. So the gal that he's stooping, who is who is like, hey, you should totally divorce your your wife, who's the queen, and commit her to a convent. He does that, but he's still like, I'm gonna keep you on the side. That's you funny. My, you my side, baby. So he saved that honor for Galswintha, princess of Hispania, and basically tabled Frigund. Uh, so Galswintha, who I'm just going to call Gals, uh, was much more a much more desirable choice for a queen as she was royalty and offered a hefty dowry and their marriage started out like pretty positively. So like Gals had it going on. However, Gals' merit, marriage to Chilperic would sour. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine that Frigun didn't have anything to do with the marriage's deterioration because that's what she's about. She's like, I'm going to get in there and I'm going to break these people up. That's her <laughs> whole deal. So with a year of marrying Chilperic, Gals was found mysteriously strangled. Mm. <laughs> you know, it was like spontaneous strangulation. It was it was so crazy. This was likely on the orders of Frigun and or Chilperic. And even if it was on Chilperic's orders, it was probably influenced by Frigund. Hmm. Now, Chilperic was on the prowl for a third wife. And this time he actually married Frigund because I think Thank he was God. like, okay, my first wife is in a convent. My second wife has been murdered. And not that he didn't have a part to play, but I think he was just maybe gay. Like, man, okay, we've murdered someone like what's next i feel like we jumped the shark let's just get married right because i can't think of anything worse to do to my third wife so frigun had finally achieved coveted queen status but her scheming ways wouldn't go unnoticed so gal's sister queen of austria brunhilda oh that's a name I can actually say, was understandably super fucking pissed that her right, sister like, had been mysteriously me. murdered after marrying Chilperic. Gal's murder resulted in a feud between Frigund and Brunhilde that would last for 40 years. Oh, shit. But before we get to that, Frigund ruled as queen and did her wifely duty by bearing several sons oh, that shit. were probably Chilperics. Oh. Like probs mames allegedly not deafs <laughs> i only say probably because a historian from the time gregory of tours suspected that frigun was stepping out on the king oh according to him four months after the birth of her youngest son and after her husband had died we'll get into that later she was dining with king gutram and frigun stood up to excuse herself from the table saying she was pregnant but maybe this was also her version of like, oh, I have to go wash my hair. I got to go, you know, lady problems. Like I like back then I would probably all if I want to get out of something, I'm like, oh, I can't. I'm pregnant. Like, I don't want to have sex with you. I'm already pregnant. Yeah. like mm, I don't feel like it. I'm pregnant. Like if I actually ever got pregnant, that would be my excuse for everything. 
Like, I'm so sorry. Can I cut in line? I'm pregnant. I'm so sorry. I can't reach the remote. I'm pregnant. <laughs> like, Can you give me a glass of water? I can't get to the kitchen. I'm give pregnant. Me, I can't reach the wine. I'm pregnant. <laughs> the person would be like, exactly. Yeah. That's why I put it on the high shelf. <laughs> So in eight or in five eighty, an epidemic of dysentery tore through the kingdom, and Ch- Ooh, King Chilperic. So we're back to like when he's alive, and Death two of by pooping. Yes, it's it's the disease where you like shit yourself to it's death. So bad. It's bad. So uh, the king and two of their sons, Choldebert and Dagobert. <laughs> which are names that are definitely primed for a comeback, were stricken with a condition and close to death. Trigund, having been less than a stellar human being up until this point, thought that potentially the illness was God's way of punishing her, you know, having one queen murdered and the other deposed and fucked around on her husband. Like, yeah. Like, Oh, you've been She's a like, shit. Oh shit! I brought God's wrath. Yeah, like God's like you've been a shitty person. So here's a bunch of diarrhea. <laughs> In an attempt to pacify God, you know, because he can be bargained with and reasoned with. And of course, did, you that's know, how it works. He can totally be tricked. Trigun began burning kingdom tax records. I'm sorry. What? Yeah. yeah. So she felt that the tax records were excessive or like the taxes that were being imposed were excessive. So she started burning the records so people couldn't be taxed, which I'm kind of like, okay, okay. I, you go girl. Um, cause remember Jesus was not down with the tax man. That's true. He was, he was, um, not a fan. Despite this fiery tax fraud, Friedgun's two sons died. Fiery tax fraud. Yep. Even after this, Rigun donated to churches and the poor, hoping God would just like back off. Like, okay, you took my. Sorry, God. Like, and I'm just imagining the weird anxiety logic going into it. Like, she fucked up two two women's lives, so God took her two sons, and now I think she's like, okay, we're even. But I'm gonna che- keep like trying to support the church, so you leave me the fuck alone. Right, like we're we're done. Yeah, and like. Also, she was pretty committed to not really changing her ways. It's it, it's almost it like, like a pacifying thing. It, it's almost like, you know, in, in Catholicism, you go to confession, you confess to the things you've done, and, and you're you absolved. And you go back and do it. And, like, and the whole idea is if you're not really sorry, you're not really forgiven. Mm-hmm. But you basically start off with a clean slate clean slate after doing your penance so it feels like she's almost like balancing the karma where she's like well i'm gonna do this bad thing but i'm gonna donate to a church Mm. and it's fine honestly we still have people doing that constantly today like i went to church so i can be a bitch to the waitress at denny's now (laughs) (laughs) so the change of heart didn't really last when frigun's other son samson got sick Frigun told him to get the fuck away from her because she feared getting sick herself. She's like, okay, God's taking my sons and that sucks, but I'll be damned if he takes me. (laughs) Fuck you. I'm not going down with y'all. You can pay for my sins. Even King Chilperic, who divorced and committed his first wife to a convent and had his second murdered, thought this was a bridge too far. He worried Samson would die without being baptized and he... And be forced to spend eternity in baby purgatory. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah, there's this, in in some Christian religions, there's this idea that, like, 
unbaptized babies don't, don't go, go to, to heaven. heaven. Yeah. yeah, they're just like floating around. And I'm like, I remember learning that in Catholic school. And I was like, that fucking sucks. Why would God do that? It's not the baby's fault. Right? Uh, yeah, that's, I don't like that. Like, I don't know. That was one of the first times where I was learning about religion. I was like, that's fucked up. (laughs) You're like, who made that rule? Why is this a thing? It wasn't when Abraham was told to murder his son. It's when I found out unbaptized babies float around in purgatory. That's why I was like, okay, no, I've had it. (laughs) This is too much. This is a bridge too far. I am King Chilperic where I have reached my limit. So Samson survived longer than Frigun expected, so she relented and did have him baptized. But she didn't want to be around him, like, to have the baptism happen because she didn't want to get sick. I'm like, such a good mom. Clearly. Along with having sons, Frigun had a daughter, Ringguth. But but if you had thought that Frigun had reached peak toxic internalized misogyny and awful parenting, she took it even further when it came to her daughter. Mm. She was the worst fucking mom. So Ringguth was Frigun's oldest child and only daughter. Frigun saw her own daughter in the same way that she saw literally every other woman as a competitor and a threat. Ringguth was ambitious and she had been betrothed to the prince of the Visigoths in September of 584 and she traveled to Spain to marry the prince with a legion of soldiers escorting her and her mountainous dowry. I'm imagining it's the scene in Aladdin where yeah, it's like, where it's King Ali, and he has the, the Ali Abois. Yeah. And there's just like a billion people with plates of gold. Gold and, it's, and the peacocks and the elephant. And, yep, yeah, tigers. It's awesome. Um, and now King Chilperic dies. Mm. So he died. And word spread unusually quickly for the time and the soldiers who were escorting Ringuth grabbed whatever treasure they could and peaced oh. in the middle of this trip. Like, I mean, maybe it's one of those things where it's like the trip took so long that it allowed for word to spread or this was and get to them. But it's like, what the fuck? But yeah, so the, the soldiers were like, oh, the king is dead. So fuck you, bitch. Took her shit and ran. So robbed. Or no, excuse me. So when Ringuth arrived in Toulouse, a French city on the way to Spain, a duke took what was left. Wow. So Rob, dejected and mortified, Ringuth was forced to return home to her totally stable and not murdery mother. As I mentioned, Frigun was incredibly jealous of Ringuth and worried she would take the throne from her. And now that the king is out of the picture, that might be more possible because she could, like, marry and bring another king into the fold. Yeah, I'm like, I feel like, yeah. So Frigun brought her daughter to the treasure room to show off the late king's treasure. And this was probably welcomed by her daughter, considering she had just been robbed of her entire dowry by the people that were supposed to protect her. Kind of a fucking bummer. Apparently looking at treasure is exhausting, and Frigun told Ringuth, quote, I am weary. Put thou in thy hand and take out what thou mayest find. What? So basically she's like, I'm too tired to give you the gold, so just go off. Just like put your hand in the treasure chest and take whatever you want. Translation, I'm tired, just go digging in the treasure chest and take whatever you want. Oh, I did put the translation in there. Good for me. (laughs) 
<laughs> so when Ringuth reached into the treasure chest, three goon pounced, slamming the lid down onto her daughter's neck. Mm. I how I, deep like, is this fucking treasure chest? I started like having to rub like my neck. neck. Pain? Yeah, yeah, I was like, oh, right like, ugh. Um, so Ringuth narrowly escaped death when her screams alert to the alerted servants who stopped Freegund. They were like, Jesus. the fuck are you doing trying to decapitate your daughter with a treasure test chest, bitch? This needs to stop. Treasure test. Treasure test. In 584, uh, King Chilperic was assassinated. That's how he died. So after his death, his and Freegund's infant son, Clothar II, another name that's destined for a comeback. Clothar, 100%. Yes. Uh, he ascended to the throne. Sexism, when you hate women so much that you'll appoint a baby as king instead of a grown-ass woman. But because of the whole infant king situation, Frigund ruled as queen regent and would maintain this position until her death. Ooh, so she's like basically the queen. It's like they, they gave her the title of queen, but it said Radcliffe on it instead exactly. of Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> So to avoid being assassinated herself, because people were not like super on chill with her. With her. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was a lot of the murdering and the scheming and her being a total fucking bitch. So she fled to Paris with Clothar and received protection from her brother-in-law, King Guthrum. And that's the mm. one I mentioned before where she's yeah. like, I got to go. I'm pregnant. And this was after her husband had been assassinated mm. and Clothar was just a few months old. So it seemed unlikely that. If she was pregnant, the baby was her husband's. But everyone was fucking everyone back then. I'm just like, what? yeah, I'm sorry. She was an adulteress. Everyone was. All the royals were like adulterous and incestuous. It was a mess. So uh, she lived in the Notre Dame Cathedral or Notre Dame Cathedral. Excuse me. My my American is showing. (laughs) Yeah. Jesus. So the regime shift also forced tensions between neighboring countries, including Austria, because remember Brunhilde is ruling over there, and she is super pissed that Frigun murdered her sister. Yep. And this spilled out into a full-out war. Frigun had an active role in commanding her troops and leading them to victory. So, like, she's she's held up in Notre Dame, but she's also then, like... Still doing shit. Hey, can someone watch my baby? I'm going to war. <laughs> In 593, she led her troops against Brunhilde's troops at the Battle of Droizy, D-R-O-I-Z-Y. I don't know how else you want me to pronounce that. <laughs> and this surprised not a single person that knew her. They were all like, yeah, of course yeah, she that did. checks out. Yep. So Frigund was also pretty liberal when it came to ordering assassinations, including ordering the assassination of Brunhilde, or, or da, 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 da. yeah, so Brunhilde, mm-hmm comma i didn't put the comma in there and her brother-in-law who was giving her refuge king guntram the dude married or she killed guntram she tried um actually apparently he's a saint recognized by the catholic church and his feast day is march 28th all right that's cool The assassination attempts failed, but it sounds like Frigun stayed in Paris, uh, and this led Guthrum and Brunhilde to team up against her. Oh, yeah, you don't piss people I off. I still, uh, the whole situation seems weird, because it's like, okay, she runs to her brother-in-law for help, mm-hmm. and he's like, okay, stay in my dank-ass cathedral. Right. It's going to be awesome. And then she's like, 
I'm going to try to assassinate you. you. But then she doesn't leave Paris. Yeah, like, right. She She's like, I'm still going to stay in your cathedral. Yeah, it's it's just really weird. And now they're teamed up to like try and get at her. And during the shit storm of conflict, Frigun made time in her busy schedule to legit assassinate a bishop. So this is a whole other like rabbit trail yeah, of her Jesus. being like a total trash fire of a human. So this was this is the story of how she kind of fucked over Bishop Praetextatus, who I think I just call the bishop because Praetextatus is a lot. That's valid. Yeah. So long story short, the bishop had been exiled by Frigun's now dead husband, King Chilperic, and Frigun and Chilperic's son, Merovec, uh, had been married to Brunhilda. Yes, the same Brunhilda who was technically Chilperic's ex-sister-in-law who was feuding with Fridigun. Like, Fri- I, I don't understand it. But yeah, anyway. this whole... That, okay. So, so Frigun's son marries Brunhilda, and the, this bishop is the one who presided over the marriage. But Chilperic wasn't super down with the marriage, probably because it was his, to his ex-sister-in-law whose sister he murdered like <laughs> and during the council of paris in 557 uh the marriage was deemed to be incestuous because ma- there was pro- i'm like oh now you have a problem with it it's f- it's the 500s mm-hmm. like like you, you know how many more years of that you got there's guys? like thousands of years before anyone actually gives a shit about that <laughs> So after uh, lobbing a bunch of other accusations at the bishop, uh, he was banished by a council of bishops in the Church of St. Peter in the Apostle in in Paris. So Chilperic and Friedgun kind of like conspire against this bishop because he presided over a marriage that they weren't chill with, (laughs) accused him of a bunch of stuff, and got everyone whipped up enough where they were like, get the fuck out. That's impressive. Well... Luckily for him, this was just a temporary exile. You know, it was like a timeout. And when he returned to Paris, he sought help from King Guntram, asking the king to investigate the trial that led to his banishment because he was like, something stinks in the state of Denmark. And I think it's free Gund. <laughs> so Guntram agreed. And after another council meeting, uh, the guy was reinstated as a bishop. So they were like, ooh, our bad. Here, here's your bishop hat back. <laughs> We, we saved it for you. It's, it's fine. Now, Frigun obviously was not down with this because it's totally went against what she and her husband originally wanted right. and achieved. So she ordered his assassination, which was carried out successfully in the bishop's own church oh. on February 24th of 586. That's kind of terrible. Holy crap. So other than hating on this one bishop, Frigun was incredibly charitable when it came to the church and clergy, probably to try and cancel out all the other negative energy that she was creating in the world. As, as previously mentioned. Frigun is just like a series of contradictions and dumpster fires. It's kind of great. We'll never really know if her sins caught up with her because Frigun died of natural causes on December 8th, 597. Natural causes? God, man. I mean... She she lived a long time. So, like here's the thing, I don't know what the afterlife had in store for her, but I'm assuming it wasn't great. And she was actually buried in Saint Denis Basilica, so she like got the whole churchy treatment. Oh well, yeah, she spent a lot of money there. Yep. After her death, her son Clothar took up her grudge with Brunhilda. <clears throat> he managed to capture Brunhilda and ordered her execution through most gu- gruesome means. 
He ordered that her hair be tied to the tail of an untamed horse and, and drag yeah. and the mm. second the horse took off Brunhild's head popped off oh well um because it was quick well because i mean yeah that part but because this wasn't like satisfying enough her body was dragged across the land by the horse until it basically fell apart yeah yeah so Let's talk about this bitch's legacy now. Okay. <laughs> Frigun's legacy is not a happy one. She is depicted as a calculating murderer and seductress who saw others as a means or barriers to her success. However, it should be noted that much about what we know about Frigun is from Gregory of Tours' history, which is decidedly anti frigun Gregory <laughs> himself had a close connections with Gutrum and Brunhilde. Oh, geez. So he was super biased in his view. And maybe that was justified, but he obviously it's hard to had, know, you know, so maybe she was super calculating, but she's kind of portrayed as this like bitch, super villainous, but was what she was doing really that outrageous compared to what other rulers were doing? I, I'm not saying like she was probably a great person. Right. But what I'm saying is that she's really made out to be this huge villain like but, how how was how bad was she really compared to others? Like yeah, like oh man, she's so evil. It's like ah, uh, she was probably like lukewarm. She was probably room temperature for the time. Right. So that is the story of Frigund and her rags to riches to bitches story. I love it. I love it so much. I I want when we we were going to do royals. I want to cover someone who is kind of insane because yeah. the royals are nuts. So yeah. So Kelly, yeah. What are you thankful for, my darling? Um, I got a practicum placement. <gasps> oh my god! Oh, did you I not did? tell you? No, you told me you had interviews. Yeah, and I. You got- didn't even tell me what they were for. You're like, I'm cute for an interview, and I'm like, what the fuck are you interviewing um, for? I never heard back from the other one, but they said next week. So there's a chance I got two, but I definitely got one of them. That is amazing. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm so happy for you. So this is like kind of your works your work study internship yeah yeah student teaching not really but well it's, i don't teach no, it, no, it's no. my equivalent of a student teaching yeah 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 that's why i'm saying where it's like you're still a student but you're like doing the thing yeah i'm excited that is amazing so are you gonna get like patience and stuff eventually yeah oh my god can i see you <laughs> can you fix me <laughs> uh no oh my god no i get it that's fine I'm super proud of you, and I love you. What are uh, you thankful for? Um, Shit, what am I thankful for? Okay, so I am really thankful for the girl gang that I have. Um, like, I've, I've been dating and doing that kind of thing. And I have, I, I'm like in this group text with a few of my friends. And basically, whenever I'm like going out on a date or if I'm like going to someone like someone's Mm -hmm. place or, you know, anything like that, I'm like, (laughs) I think this last time I wrote girl gang safety protocol initiate or ignite or engage. And I was like, okay, this is the person I'm going out with. This is the time I'm meeting them. This is, you know, where I'm meeting them. Um, I, I needed to get a ride because my car was not working properly. Like here's when my, my Uber's picking me up. Here's who my driver is. Here's the car. Like just kind of all that stuff. And then like texting, like, Hey, I got here. Okay. Hey, I, I'm I'm leaving. Hey, I got home. Okay. You know, just those check-ins. And as I was doing it, I was 
feeling a little excessive. Like, Emily, maybe you need to calm down. But I was like, no. First of all, fuck that self-gaslighting bullshit. Right, like, fuck that noise. But also, it was just really nice because none of my friends made me feel bad. They were all like, oh, awesome, have a good time. You know, let us know if you need anything. Right. And it's really nice to be able to just do that yeah like have friends I can go to who will put up with my anxiety brain but then also because they act they give a shit if I make it home safe right you know so that was that was really awesome and I highly recommend everyone does that kind of thing when they're going out and dating and doing that like safety protocol engage let people know where you're going who you're with give names give addresses give times check in and if the person that you're going out with thinks that's excessive or isn't cool with it. That's a red flag and you need to leave. Right. Like, like if that's they're not okay, if they're not okay with you doing what you need to do to feel safe, then fuck them. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I don't know. I'm thankful that I ha- have my girl gang safety protocol. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHpod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com where you can find a link to our Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1 to get some extra special stuff. So amazing. Our merch is also linked on there, um, which we have some pretty sweet merch. And we also have a contact form on there or you can email us at whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Because we love hearing from you guys. Also, raise five stars wherever you listen. Five stars. As always, I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And I'm Raspy. And have Mm -hmm. an empowered day. Bye. Bye.